serving up the strategies you need to build, market and monetize a profitable, future-proof business around your expertise. This is the Youpreneur Podcast. And here's your host, international business mentor and best-selling author, Chris Ducker. Yes, hello there and welcome back to another episode of the Youpreneur Podcast. It's great to be with you as always. This is episode number 496. And today I'm joined by Ben Leonard, uh, e-commerce pro and all-around rock star when it comes to physical products. And we talk about what we need to do as personal brand entrepreneurs if we're looking at bringing physical products into our ecosystem. So here on the show, you'll often hear me talk about the Youpreneur ecosystem and what it takes to build out a uh, you know collection, ultimately, of products and services that we can put together uh, that all kind of cross-sell and cross-reference each other uh, and obviously build out that ecosystem um, that we can then go ahead and offer to our prospects and to our existing clients. Um, however, I don't actually go into physical products all that much. Yes, I talk about things like merch, like T-shirts, mugs and notebooks and things like that. But because I don't have any physical products myself, um, I'm not really the best to talk about it quite frankly. However, Ben has done incredibly well. So make sure that you, uh, if this is something that you're thinking about, make sure you take a whole bunch of notes on this and pick up Ben's book, which we talk about as well, because it will give you a really good snapshot into what it takes to be able to uh, ultimately introduce, market, and sell physical products uh, via an e-commerce setup with your personal brand at the very core of everything. So here we go, myself and Ben, and please note that although my audio is a little funky on this one for some reason, uh, it's still good enough to be able to listen, so power through and enjoy all of Ben's docile tones along with my own as well. Uh, hope you enjoy it. This is the Youpreneur FM podcast with Chris Ducker. So Ben, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thanks for having me, Chris. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Now, we've not uh, known each other for very long, but your new book is out and it's it grabbed my attention because, as you know, I'm all about branding, all about personal branding and building uh, successful businesses. It's called Quit Stalling and Build Your Brand. You don't need an MBA to crush it in e-commerce. So I'm assuming heavily from that subtitle, this book is very much kind of uh, skewed towards the e-commerce entrepreneur out there, but also that there's some pretty solid foundational elements here that I know anybody that picks up the book is going to get some good stuff out of it, right? Yeah, you're right. It is an e-commerce brand building book. So it's it's really for building physical products brands, mm -hmm. groups of products that solve problems for a particular group of people. And I like to encourage people to build product brands around things they're passionate about. So I might say, Chris, you should start a bonsai accessories brand for oh, us. Oh, you've done your research. This is good. <laughs> I've done more than that. Unfortunately, you're responsible for me now having several bonsai plants in my house because oh. I've seen your bonsai content on Insta. Okay. Well, I must say, if they're in your house, get them out. Otherwise, they're going to die. I'm not going to turn this into a bonsai workshop. <laughs> bonsai trees like to live outside because they're trees. So many people make the mistake of bringing them in the house and putting them like on the kitchen shelf or something like that. And before you know it's happening, they're dead. They're just not going to survive indoors. So get them outside ASAP. Trust me, you'll thank me. All right. <laughs> but, but 
with all that to one side, back to our regular schedule programming. Um, where did this? Where did the idea for the book come from? Sure, it was spring 2022, so spring last year. Okay, I was at an e-commerce conference, and I was sitting in the audience. And I had almost like an out of, it wasn't quite a, a, a real out of body experience, but it, I, I kind of remember it like that because I was, everybody was mesmerized by the guy that was on stage and uh, he was casting a spell over this audience. And I kind of stopped and looked around me and saw them all lapping up everything he was saying. And I thought, nothing he's saying is particularly wrong, but he's not showing us any evidence of what he's actually done. Right. It's all, well, you could do this, you could do that. Very impressive in theory, but I want to see stuff on paper. And I did a bit of digging on this guy, and he hadn't really done anything particularly of note. And I decided then that I wanted to come out of stealth mode and write the book that I'd wished I'd had whilst I was building my first e-commerce business and um, you know, almost as a guide for myself as I'm building my new brands now. Okay, so th I like this. This is a good MO. Um, so what was it then... The catcher in stealth mode. How long had you been in stealth mode build, building your own businesses? Sure. Well, I started my first e-commerce brand in 2016. That was a brand of fitness equipment called Beast Gear. Um, my background background was very different. I'm, you know, I'm I'm in Northeast Scotland. I'm in Aberdeen, which is an oil town, and almost inevitably, I ended up working in oil, despite the fact that my key interests are um, environmental conservation. So I was an environmental um, advisor in that industry. I got really sick, 2015-16. Uh, I had a heart problem. I got better. Uh, but whilst I was unable to work and unable to take part in my fitness hobbies, I started this fitness brand as a, as a hobby with the idea that it might earn me some pocket money. And the plan was to sell these products directly into gyms. And that didn't go well. But after doing a bit of homework, I realized that I could sell online to people like me because there were platforms that made it easy, uh, like Shopify like the Amazon marketplace. And I turned out to be pretty good at it. And three and a half years later, that business was doing $6 million in revenue and I sold it. I'd, I'd quit my job by this point, of course. And now I'm building new brands. I'm helping others to build their brands. But I'd been in stealth mode really up until probably you know 2021. 2021, I'd started to be on a few podcasts, things like that. Um, but but it was really, you know, that that time watching that guy at that conference, and I thought, right, I'm really going to go for it now. I'm going to write a book, and uh, I'm going to going to pass on what I know to people. It's interesting because you know I I work with a lot of entrepreneurs, obviously, and the one thing that I often hear from them, in terms of like a catalyst point, is that they saw somebody do something that they think they could do better, or they kind of consume something from someone that they didn't necessarily agree with and they wanted to kind of get on their own soapbox or whatever analogy you want to use. And I always find it quite interesting uh, and, and, and quite eye-opening in regards to like the different types of motivations between mm -hmm. people, like you say, coming out of the shadows, so to speak, already building a wildly successful business and getting to the point where you've just said, you know what, I kind of had enough. I'm out. I've made my money from that. I know I can help other people avoid the mistakes to be able to, you know, as I would say, go further, faster, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's always, it's always a very personal sort of story. It's, 
interesting to see. And you're obviously a young guy. I don't know how how old you are. I'm not going to ask, but I mean, like you're a young dude compared to an old fogey like me. And it's nice to see younger entrepreneurs that are out there taking those risks and moving things forward, not overthinking things too much, but also being relatively calculated in in the time that they do things. Do you think that um, this particular kind of decision to sort of come out uh, of the shadows, so to speak, do you think that this was maybe something you would have done sooner uh, in one way, shape or form? Or do you feel like it was kind of like the right timing for you, seeing this guy on stage, not being overly impressed, uh, not being disgusted, but not overly impressed with his delivery, you know, all that sort of yeah. thing? Yeah. I regret not doing it sooner. Mm. Um because I really see the value in building a personal brand. Uh, you know, uh, I read your book several years ago, and that was part, I was at, well, I, I had, no, that's a lie. I listened to it. Um, round about that time, it was shortly after I'd made the decision that I started listening to your book. And I see other people building in public now, building their, their you know, they're building a personal profile and they're talking about whatever entrepreneurial um uh, enterprise that they're building that could be a, a physical products brand or it could be a software company or whatever it might be and i love documenting the journey i encourage people to document the journey and i wish i'd done it sooner so i wish perhaps maybe when there was mm, perhaps a year to go before i sold my first business i'd really started doing that right um, i think i would be a lot further on than i am now but you know on the other hand i say to myself well you can't live your life like that thinking i wish i should have would have could no, 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 no. yeah exactly yeah the woulda, shoulda, coulda thing is uh, that's just like self, you know, self-destroying almost to a certain degree because yeah. we can always say I should have done this earlier or I could have been able to do that or, you know, I, I should have waited until here and now. And it, it, it's just, yeah, you got you look, you got to look forward. You can't look fast with it. Um, with the book itself, though, let's talk about kind of like the main, I know you've got like three or four main parts in it in regards to sort of like, the strategy behind the brand itself, the actual kind of blueprint that you have kind of put in place for people to kind of build out this e-commerce type of business, then obviously launching and growing and things like that. What was the, and we'll get into a few bits and pieces. We're not going to read the entire book out, guys. If you want the audio version, just go, go to Ben. He'll give it to you. But I'm curious to see, like, what was, what was the one section of the book that you were most excited about getting down on paper, so to speak? I think I was most excited about talking about the branding and the marketing side. Um, having said that, I was really keen to to push through the message that I do in the first part of the book, which is about giving yourself permission. Mm -hmm. Because I see so many people either not pursue their ideas because they think that entrepreneurs are other people. You know, um, they think that entrepreneurs are people with business degrees, with tons of capital, perhaps who've inherited a business or who've had some wonderful idea for an invention. And we're taught this by society, you know, or historically we were, we were taught that you go to school, you get a job, you go to university, all that stuff. Um, and the entrepreneurs were kind of weird and wacky, but now entrepreneurship has become cool. You know, we see people who we may not agree with everything they say and do, they may be somewhat controversial, but we see them in the media and we, uh, you know, we start to associate entrepreneurship with, with being mainstream, being cool. And I'm trying to encourage that because I had the idea for my first brand, Beast Gear, in 2012, 
And I did nothing about it until 2016. It was only because I got really ill and I needed something to get my teeth into. You know, I was struggling with my physical health and my mental health at the time. And it was that gave me a purpose. And my wife and my parents encouraged me to do it, really, even just as a hobby, a distraction, whilst I got better. And I don't want other people to wait for some enormous catalyst before they take action and to yeah. actually say, you know, actually give yourself permission to give this a shot. You don't need experience. You actually don't need bucket loads of cash to start this. I've been there and done it. Here's the roadmap. So mm. yeah, the branding and the marketing, I was really eager to get down. Um, but in also- In some respects, that's the easy stuff, isn't it? You know in some I mean? ways, because that that is, yeah, that's kind of what, that's almost the bread and butter. Although, of course, you've got to get it right. But it was actually, it was, I wanted to put that sort of barrier at, yeah. at front. You know, this is the barrier you need to overcome. You need to give yourself permission, get into the right mindset, and then pre be prepared to scratch your entrepreneurial itch, figure out exactly what that itch is, and um, and give it a shot. Yeah. And I think, you know, when I was writing Rise of the Youpreneur, and even actually going all the way back to virtual freedom, like I remember the concept with virtual freedom of building a team of virtual staff, like that was nothing new that it'd been around in my world for about a decade already. So we're talking, you know, 20, 2004, 2005, starting mm -hmm. from there. Book came out in 2014. Tim Ferriss came out with four hour work week in nine and 10, depending on where you were in the world. So the whole kind of concept of virtual assistance, quote unquote, was nothing new. Mm. But the 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 stumbling block that I tried to overcome was the fact that, you know, it's okay to outsource your work, particularly in the United States at that time. It was like sacrilege to to outsource work to overseas workers. You should keep the jobs in America, you know, that kind of thing. And mm. you know, my position was just very simple. Like, you know, it's tough to run a it's tough to run a small business. It's expensive to run a small business. And if you can cut costs, which allow you to ultimately survive longer and get past that three year and that five year threshold as a small business owner, you will actually be able to do more good for the local economy in terms of hiring and distribution and paying taxes and all that stuff than you would have done if you'd have gone bankrupt, obviously, because all your costs yep. through the work, the roof. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it doesn't surprise me that you put that, like you say, the perfect term, a barrier. Like you either you're in or you're not. There's no 50-50 yeah. here. And I yeah. like that. Have you had obviously, I mean the book's only been out for a short period of time, but have you had any feedback from folks that have really kind of resonated with that that barrier section of the book? Yeah, I have actually. And in, it's interesting because I've had it in two ways and I, I wasn't expecting the second way. So the first way I was kind of expecting, which was from people who maybe have an idea, haven't really done anything with it yet. And this has kind of given them the kick up the bum to go and do something. Mm -hmm. And the second is from people who have an e-commerce business, which perhaps needs a bit of a, a rejuvenation, a bit of a refresh. And this that first section that I was talking about there has given them the mindset shift that they needed because although they'd given themselves the bit the permission to start a business they hadn't had the mindset shift to treat it seriously you know they started it as a side hustle there's nothing wrong with that i started my business as a side hustle but when we when we do that when we call it a side hustle we're immediately uh putting a, a limitation on the business because we're not treating it quite as um, we're not giving it the respect it deserves to really realize the potential that it, it has to be more yeah. than a side hustle, yeah. to be a legit business. 
And so when people get over that mindset shift, they suddenly start to think bigger and they start to treat the business and themselves with the respect that they deserve. You know, one client of mine a while ago, and this inspired me to actually, I kind of sort of paraphrased this in the book. They said, yeah, but you know, my business isn't really a real brand. You know, I'm not Nike. To which I said, well, actually you are. The only difference is scale. You know, once upon a time, Nike, Nike was just an idea. And even on day one, when they'd sold nothing, it was a brand because they said it was a brand and they mm. gave themselves permission to behave like a brand. And that's kind of one of the things I'm trying to get across to people is you're not just selling stuff on the internet. You're building a legit CPG brand that acts and looks and feels and behaves like your favorite brands do. Gotcha. Okay. So let's say we've got an idea and we think we are, you know, we think we want to take this seriously and kind of step into this physical product e-commerce world. What are, what are a couple of ways for us to be able to kind of test or validate our ideas to make sure that we're not going to have a couple of dodo products right out of the gate? Yep. So the first, the first way that I like to explain this is I like to actually tell people to build brands around things that they're passionate about. So first of all, you know, you, you need to make sure that you are your customer and you're solving problems that legitimately exist in your niche. And I like to tell people to go niche. You know, if we're going to turn into American English for a moment, we can say that the riches are in the niches because people are incredibly passionate about niche things, whether that is bonsai or scuba diving or rock climbing, or it could be to do with a profession, right? You might develop products for dentists for mm -hmm. all I know. So when you go niche, and you solve real problems for your people and you understand your people, you can be much more confident that you're actually going, there's going to be a demand for your product because nobody knows your niche like you do. Secondly, if you're already involved in that niche, you simply start asking people, hey, this is my idea. What I want to do is I want to take this product, but I'd like to put a little twist on it because I don't think that product performs really quite well enough. What do you think of that? You know, and yeah, the larger sample size you can do, the better. But often you, you, know, you don't need to go literally you know pouring money into into studies on this it's just you know sample the people at your local you know knitting club or whatever it might be you know that's that's step one yeah step two is well research what's already on sale so look at amazon look at instagram look at tiktok go onto sourcing web legs websites like alibaba see what already exists and is there demand for it if there's already demand fantastic that doesn't mean that it's too late it means that there's lots of people that already want to buy this the way that you're then going to win is to position yourself in that market slightly different or a lot differently. That could be on performance, color, shape, style, perhaps even price. You yep. might differentiate on the story of the brand. So I did that a lot with Beast Gear. One of the things that made Beast Gear quite attractive to our customer base was that I made myself the face of the brand. So averagely fit, normal bloke with asthma, face of a fitness brand couldn't be more different than the fitness industry, right? Which sure. is all about the biggest, the strongest, the fastest, the slimmest, very elitist. But I realized that authenticity was working. When I was speaking to my customers, they liked it. So I, I decided to go all in on being front and center of the brand and saying, look, if you're the heavyweight champion of the world, you're welcome with our brand. But also, if you're really unfit and trying to run your first 5K, you're also welcome with our brand. So long as you're setting goals and getting after them, you are a beast because you say so. It's a little bit like telling people you're an entrepreneur because you're, you say so, right? I'm just kind of taking that a step further. Sure. And that worked really well. Okay, good. 
I like that. Okay. So then, I mean, I think the big question here is that a lot of people, you know, let's say that they have validated an idea and they've got some feedback from folks and they've got a product that they want to launch and get out. Like, where, do, where does where does the pricing element comes in come into play here in terms of figuring out what you're going to charge? Because, I mean, I, for the most part, I'm not really delved into the physical product market at all. Um, my good buddy Pat Flynn has done it with switch pods and a couple of other bits and pieces. I know a whole bunch of other people that sell physical products, everything from, you know, journals right the way through to, you know, you name it, trailers for their cars, you know, whatever it is. Like, it's always come across to me as a little bit of a minefield. It's always come across to me as well as something where, you know, costs can unfortunately go up you know you've done a whole bunch of marketing and you've you know you've got a certain handle on the market and how you're selling the products and then all of a sudden one of your suppliers is like oh costs are going up by 30 percent. that means ouch now my margin is going to be affected like where do you start on the price structure side of things is there a sort of you know a, a, almost like a checklist to a certain degree on that almost yes you're going to want to be able to sell your product for three to five times or more that what it costs you to make and sell. Gotcha. Uh, sorry, to, 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 to make and import. Right. Um, and, you know, you just mentioned Pat Flynn there in the switch pod, which uh, is, is a great example of, uh, you know, product development, um, taking, you know, two related ideas, you know, the handheld uh, uh, camera and the tripod and, and combining them. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that that rule will apply. I, mean, I would imagine if you reverse engineer it, find out what it costs, uh, Pat to make that and import it that he's probably selling that for at least five times. Oh, I mean, I, um, yeah, I know his numbers on it for sure. And you're not too far yeah. off the mark. Yeah. And, you know, it's a great example. Pat's actually, actually mentioned Pat in the book. Um, oh, okay. So, so yeah, you need to, uh, you need to make sure that the margin is there. That's where so many people fall down. Right. Okay. So three to five times on average, what it takes you to ultimately make it and get it into the country you mentioned yep. importing i mean are a lot of these products made overseas or, or oh yeah or okay so like the vast majority of them the vast majority i i'm absolutely not anti-manufacturing you know in your home country whether that's the uk sure. or mainland europe or the us or wherever it is if that works and makes sense and that often that can be a fantastic um usp uh you know made in america made in the uk yeah um but equally, what can work quite well is to say, well, it was designed in the UK and, you know, we make it in China or Vietnam or Taiwan or Pakistan or India. Um, purely, you know, exactly as you were saying before, without sourcing talent overseas, outsourcing manufacturing overseas just makes sense from an economic point of view. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I get it. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think there's I, I used to work with a client who is quite focused on, you know, uh, the UK or, you know, Britain, British made products. And she, I mean, she did great job championing the whole made in Britain thing, but also, you know, it must've been, although I wasn't aware of a lot of it, it must've been quite a challenge for her, uh, working with the types of clients that she was working with when it came to being, you know, competitive from a price standpoint, regardless of where they were trying to sell the products, whether it was here or overseas for that matter. Um, but, you know, the whole kind of made in USA, made in Britain kind of thing, like, I get it, but it must be tough to turn a decent profit uh, unless you're shifting like sheer volume, right? Yeah, it, it is. And there has to be a really compelling story that you tell to your audience as to there's going to justify that higher price. 
So it could be that it's a premium product in the first place. Could be that you you have to make it in your home country for a variety of reasons. Maybe it's sourcing the raw materials. Maybe there's a particular manufacturing process that for technical reasons literally has to be done where you know locally or maybe the product can't be made far away for reasons of it's gonna you know it's gonna degrade or go off perhaps yeah all those things gotcha all right let's talk as we kind of start wrapping up here a little bit let's talk launching then so like i teach people you know it's very very important to have a pre-launch period when you're selling a course or a coaching program or even a book for that matter anything like that um I know you cover the pre-launch side of things in the book I think a lot of people focus way too much on the launch itself and not enough on the pre-launch where actually you can build a ton of momentum towards launch day what's your take on it I completely agree. Uh, so many people get so consumed with developing their product and they have this future vision of how wonderful it's going to be when all these people are buying it. And then they press go on their website or their marketplace like Amazon or Etsy or whatever they're doing and nothing happens because they haven't, they haven't put the, um, they haven't put the energy into the system beforehand. So, you know, an, an analogy I like to use is when I was a kid, I used to play with those, those little, uh, planes made of like balsa wood with a rubber band and you'd, you'd oh, twizzle yeah. it up. And it would go, you know, whooshing off. It was so exciting. Yeah. And that's what I say to people right now. You know, let's imagine we've we've developed our product. We've actually made a whole bunch of them. There's 500 coming on a boat from China right now. It's going to be here in 30 days. Let's use this time and probably a bit more time before that as well to really start winding up that rubber band, building our audience, getting them excited. And there are a lot of ways that we can do that. You know, we can create. First of all, we have to understand who our audience is and what compels them to buy and what their problems and pain points are. And that's why we build a customer avatar. And that's a whole other podcast in itself. Yeah. But when we understand our customer, we can create content that they want, whether that's videos or how-to guides or podcast episodes, or even just um, compelling social media content, show up where they are and provide it to them. Getting to the community is another thing I'm a huge fan of. So, you know, uh, at a, at a, you know, this is a, it's not something that enormous companies are doing, but we can do as as uh, small business owners, we can get into the Facebook groups, the Discord groups, the Reddit groups, become a helpful member of that community, provide value, become liked. And when we're ready to tell people about our project, guess what? That community is going to support us. And those people are going to join our email list. And they're going to tell their friends who are also interested in our passion and our niche to get on our email list for when we're going to launch our product. And maybe we're giving away a prize as well. Maybe there's a competition, you know? And we can build our email list so that when we're ready to go, we've got you know a good sort of at least a thousand people who are who have raised their hand and said, "I want to buy this." Yeah. And then when you go, instead of it being crickets, it's you know it's a satisfying blast off, and we get the flywheel spinning. Not so long ago, I remember, and I was completely enthralled by this young lady. She was based in the United States. Um, I somehow stumbled over one of her videos where she was basically showing the kind of the behind the scenes, so to speak, of a launch that she was doing um, using Shopify uh, to sell, I think it was like hoodies or sweatshirts or something like that. She was a relatively young, um, young lady, I'd say kind of mid twenties or so. And she had talked about how, you know, behind her on the racks were sort of, you know, whatever it was, 3,000 hoodies or whatever. Um, and she was so scared that, you know, nobody was going to buy. 
uh, and yet you know minutes before the cart went live and the product went live and she launched she could see i think it was like shopify had some sort of map or something she could see like all these people waiting for the cart to yeah. open um and boy it was like crack cocaine on youtube for a viewer yeah. because you just could not wait to see what happened and she yeah. said this is crazy like i got 90 seconds and there's like 3000 people waiting like i don't even have 3000 shirts and all this kind of thing and she went live and then the sales ticker just started going in the background and ended up actually breaking the ticker broke halfway through the because it was just, it couldn't keep up and she was like i don't know what's going on i don't know how many sales were made and then like 5 minutes later she'd sold out of all of her in, in her amazing it was yep. it was insane and i was you know it's tough to it's tough to watch videos like that and not think hmm, i wonder if i could do that <laughs> you know what i mean yep. do you do yep. you think that your book is potentially going to help people watch videos like that and take that first step into making it happen absolutely that's you know that's my goal with the book right my goal with the book is to champion entrepreneurship and in this case particularly e-commerce brand building um turning passions into real products brands that solve problems and provide value and enhance people's lives you know as it relates to the niche that you're in right mm -hmm. whether that's in you know uh in fitness in, in my case or you know uh knitting right which is an example i use a lot in the book and and i believe that it does and i'm i'm really proud of it and i i hope and so far you know the feedback's been great and i hope that it uh it encourages people to take that step and potentially you know change of their life um they you know they build a great brand they end up replacing their income potentially selling that business for life-changing money i love it well look man i appreciate you coming on and uh walking us through a little bit of the book and and the goodness that sits within its pages. Uh, for you guys tuning in, quit stalling and build your brand. You don't need an MBA to crush it in e-commerce. Ben Leonard. You can hop over to quitstallingbook.com or find it on Amazon, bookstores, all that good stuff. Um, ben, appreciate you, man. Thanks for coming on and sharing your knowledge. And uh, yeah, make sure you look after those bonsai trees, okay? I will. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. All right, man. For you guys tuning in, appreciate you as always. We guys, we just hit nine million downloads on this show, and uh, even though I knew it was coming, because you you look at the numbers and the numbers never lie, uh, I was still kind of shocked when it clicked over. So I appreciate you so so much. If you've ever tuned in, shared, reviewed, downloaded, or subscribed to the show, you're a rock star. I'll be back at you again next week with another episode of the show. Till then, take great care. Bye for now. Youpreneur FM, your number one personal brand business podcast.